Introducing our Elanon speaker for today, Ramona R. from Okmulgee, Oklahoma. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. It's a blast, a lot of fun. Let's go ahead and pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. It's a cassette. The central office gave me a bunch of cassettes, and I must get them out there to the public. God bless you for listening. Thank you so much. I am a Elanon grateful member, Fernando. Here's Ramona. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Hi, everybody. My name is Ramona. And my home group is the original Al-Anon group in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. Now, I told Nancy she didn't have to say Okmulgee. Because nobody can say Okmulgee unless you've been born and reared there. I want to thank you for including me today. It's a great pleasure to get to come to California. It's a great pleasure to be with anyone who is in the AA, Al-Anon, Al-Teen, Al-Taught, and Adult Children of Alcoholics, because it's a 12-step recovery program, and that's what I'm trying to live. I want to thank the committee for the lovely things they've done for me. Uh, Jackie met me with uh, some carnations, and uh, then I had all this delicious fruit in my room and uh, a dinner last night. And I'm going back to Oklahoma and telling they better treat me with a little more respect. <laughs> but I certainly want to thank you for all of the kindness. I really appreciate it. And most of all, I want to thank you for your warm and loving eyes. Because without those, this being up here would be almost impossible for me. Because when I came here, that's what I found, warm and loving eyes. I really would like not to talk about what it used to be like. Because that's all I'm here for, is to share my experience, strength, and hope. And my experience is what it used to be like. My strength is what happened. And my hope is what I am today and what I'm trying to become. There's so much that I find in the program, I'd like to talk about the strength. There's so much that I'm living in my life today, I'd like to talk about the hope. But, you see, I have no, no more than the alcoholic, does the member of Al-Anon have the security that you've always got this program. We can slip away just as easily. I think easier sometimes when our life becomes sort of what we quote normal and we don't think we need it anymore. Because you see, I really thought my life was only unmanageable whilst he drank. If he didn't drink, I could take care of it all. And I find now that my life is still unmanageable. But you gave me a manager and that's what I want to stay close to. And to use that manager, I have to be with you to show me how. Well, I know you couldn't tell by looking at me now. Because many moons have passed 
since the story started. But uh, I am of Indian heritage. My father was Indian, and my mother had no Indian blood at all. I have one sister, and we were raised on a ranch out in the country, not too far away from Okmulgee. And I had a beautiful life. We had everything that we needed and all the love that two girls could ask for. And we both had a wonderful relationship with our father. My father spent a lot of time with me. And when he wanted to have a father and daughter talk, why, when I'd be eating breakfast, I'd look down at the barn and my pony would be tied up by his horse. And I know we were going to go for a ride. And then there was going to be a father and daughter talk, and I loved it. And we'd ride back in those little Oklahoma hills, and he would find a creek. And if it was springtime, summertime, we'd tie our horses up to a tree and sit down on the creek bank and take our boots and socks off and put our feet in the creek. And then he'd talk to me. And he would talk to me about the beauty of God's world. And he would talk to me about dignity. And he would talk to me about what the Indian was for and what we were given. God had given us a beautiful world. Everything God made in this world is beautiful. Things that man made have sometimes destroyed it. He told me of the days when he was a boy and the grass in Oklahoma was stirred deep. And now, in Oklahoma, the grass is ankle deep. The weeds are stirrup deep. He made me feel loved and cherished and peaceful. And uh, then we went home. And I had a mother, a tall, beautiful, erect, dominating mother. And... Uh, <laughs> She set out to live her life but with, through the two girls that she had raised. We were going to do everything that she had always wanted to do and never accomplished. Well, I can remember the first thing she did that I really made an impact on me was she went to the country school I attended and took typing lessons. Now, that's disgusting. And my mother was a health freak before it was ever thought of, and we had to walk three miles on Sunday. You know, I have to go for a walk. And I was born, I wasn't like my mother, I was like my daddy. I always felt like if God intended for me to walk, he'd give me four legs like a horse. <laughs> but mother went over and learned these typing, took these typing lessons because she wanted to type. And she typed messages that she put in the mirror that she wanted us to learn. She said, girls look in the mirror more than they look anyplace else. And that I would learn them. So, first one was, <laughs> if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Well, that damn near killed me later down the road. The other one she typed that I was to memorize was, happiness is not something you find, it's something you create. Well, that damn near killed a little cowboy later down the road. <laughs> because she failed to tell me that I couldn't create a person. Well, 
I got up about the marrying age. Well, at least I considered I was a marrying age. Everybody around me was getting married, and I didn't want to get left out. And a little cowboy walked by. He was minding his own business. <laughs> he didn't hear any wedding bells. Or and I want to tell you, he had the whitest cowboy hat and the fanciest cowboy boots and the shiniest set of blue eyes in between that you ever saw. And right then, another white man bit the dust. <laughs> Old Bob never even knew what hit him. He just went down, you know. And I like to say that that began the greatest war between a cowboy and an Indian that ever took place in Oklahoma. Well, we moved to a ranch that had been in his family for years, and uh, I just knew we were going to live happily ever after. You know, I always believed in living happily ever after. All the stories I read ended up happily ever after. Because if they didn't, I read the last first. And if they didn't end that way, I didn't read the book. <laughs> so I could just see us. We were going to be just like... Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, you know, and just ride off into the sunset. Well, I did not know my husband was an alcoholic. I did not know alcoholism was a family disease. And I did not know that I was going to become sicker, quicker than he did. All I knew was that I loved him. And he drank a little bit. You know, all cowboys drink just a little bit. And we didn't, uh, we lived 10 miles from town, and our nearest neighbor was five miles, and I got to go to town on Saturdays in this little town, and we would go in and buy our groceries, and it was Saturday night, and then we would go to the honky-tonk. And boy, you all haven't lived if you hadn't been to an old Oklahoma honky-tonk. And we'd go in, and that old honky-tonk music would be playing, and those old cowboys would be sitting there drinking, and Bob would get right in the big middle of it. And I just loved it. We had a wonderful time. And uh, Bob was a quiet person, and when he drank, he said real cute things. <laughs> and I laughed louder than anybody. And I thought we danced better than anybody. And then we went home. And it was Saturday night. I don't know what you all used to do on Saturday night in Oklahoma, in California, but I know what we did in Oklahoma. <laughs> and Bob was affectionate, and I didn't mind that at all. So everything was great. Everything was wonderful. But what happens? What happens in the family disease of alcoholism? There's not one of us in this room that can say on October the 22nd of 1978, alcoholism struck our home. <laughs> That's not the way it happens. It glides in. It slides in. It steals in. And all of a sudden, there you are. And that was the way it was with us. We lived in the same house. We went to the same town on Saturday, bought the groceries, and went to the same old honky-tonk. And there were the same old cowboys 
drinking the same old thing, the Nickelodeon grinding out the same old honky-tonk music, and Bob would get with it. And he said funny things. Everybody else thought they were funny. I didn't laugh. I wanted to go home. And then he wanted to dance, and I wasn't going to dance with a drunk. I wanted to go home. And finally, we'd get to the parking lot, and then the battle would start over who was going to drive home. And you know, not in all of those 13 years of active alcoholism did he ever once say, Darling, would you like to drive home tonight? I fought him every time for the keys. Well, then we would get home, and it was Saturday night. And old Bob wanted to be affectionate. <laughs> I wasn't about to have any of that. I'd teach him a lesson. You know, there's a great thing for a song for us sick wives of alcoholics when we're living with a practicing alcoholic and before we find out none. And that is... Don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind. And I was going to teach him. And that began the many nights when I was going to teach him a lesson. So he slept in bed and I laid awake on the couch. You know, thinking of this, you know, I had to tell him what he'd done. He did not know what he had done. He did not know how he looked. And it was my responsibility, as a good wife, to tell him that. So I would, you know, get all these speeches made up. And you know what? I don't know whether you're any UAA members in here or not, an alcoholic, but I want to tell you, you boogers are hell to talk to. <laughs> we just can't find the right time. And you know, get everything ready. You've got to find the right time now. you just got to talk at the right time. Six o'clock in the morning was my right time. And I'd go in there to the bed and I'd shake old Bob. And I'd say, Bob, I want to talk to you. And he'd say, Ramona, leave me alone. And I'd say, Bob, I'm going to talk to you. And he'd say, Ramona, please let me get some sleep. And I'd say, Bob, do you know what you did last night? Well, just in case you don't know. And then I'd give him a blow-by-blow blow description of what had happened the night before. <laughs> Poor old Bob prayed for the silent treatment. He never got it. <laughs> and right here, at this point in life, I took on a role that I was to play for many, many years, and one that I have to watch myself constantly, or oh, I'll play it again today. And if you would ask me what I think the prime qualification to be a member of Al-Anon is, I would say to become a fixer. And I became a fixer. I was going to fix people and places and situations and he wouldn't have to drink anymore. I never looked at me. Well, there wasn't anything wrong with me. There never had been anything wrong with me. I told him that. <laughs> I 
said, the only damn dumb thing I've ever done is marry you. And when I got him straightened out, everything was going to be fine. So I looked around for what to fix. And I decided we need to be a family. You know, you can't party and run around and stay at rodeos and all this jazz when, you, when you've got children. So I got busy on that little project. Best job I ever had. I just worked and worked. <laughs> and I had a baby. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had an emergency. Well, uh, Sherry Frondell, please contact home immediately. Sherry Frondall, F-R-O-N-D-A-L. Thank you. So, I had a baby all by myself. You would have thought it was the immaculate conception for the amount of credit I gave Bob. And I remembered when he walked in the hospital room and I looked at him and I said, Bob, you have everything. You've got a ranch. You've got quarter horses. You've got Hereford cattle. Now you've got a little daughter. And above all, you've got me. You don't have to drink anymore. I didn't know my husband was an alcoholic. And I didn't know it was a family disease. And I didn't know I was getting sicker day by day. Well, that baby wasn't six months old when I took my first trip home to mother. The first of many trips I was going to take home to mother to teach him a lesson. He let me stay about three days, and then here he came. And he said these famous words, Ramona, I love you. I love Robin. I want you to come home, and I won't drink so much anymore. Well, I had taught him a lesson, and I grabbed the baby bottles, diapers, waved goodbye to mother, and I went home. Well, you know about how long that lasted. And I began looking around again to fix something. And I knew what it was. He was disappointed because he didn't have a son. You know, it was like raising to be a cowboy and all that. So I started in again. I guess I thought babies were the cure for alcoholism. And I just prayed and prayed that God would give me a son so Bob wouldn't drink so much anymore. Well, that's what I called praying then. I got up every morning and gave God his marching orders. And I told him what he'd do and what I'd do. Well, in his infinite mercy, he did answer that prayer. And we had a little Indian boy, a little short, fat, hair stuck straight up. And I thought, here it is. What more could he want? What more? I didn't know he was sick. And I didn't know I was sick. And I set about the moving. You know, we never couldn't take geographical cures like everybody else. We just moved in town and out of town. That's as far as we could get. And I began the cutting away. You know, I think the loss of communication is the greatest thing that happens in the family disease of alcoholism. You see, Bob and I could no longer talk to each other. The art of communication is the art of listening as well as the art of speaking. And we didn't hear each other anymore. We had a wall built between us. And it was a wall built of guilt and hurt and hate and remorse. And I was on one side dying, and he was on the other side dying. But we didn't hear each other anymore. And what about your families? 
You know, here I went to this daddy. This daddy who'd been able to do anything in my life. Anything I wanted, my daddy could always do. And here I was, a grown woman, the mother of two children, and I run over there to him and I say, help me, daddy. For God's sake, help me. And he said, Ramona, get out. We don't want you living in that kind of home. We don't want our grandchildren raised in that kind of a home. Bob is a good boy. He just drinks too much. Well, how did I tell him that I love this man that drank too much? I love this man that doesn't come home. I love this man that writes hot checks. Because I thought love was approval. That's all I'd ever been taught. And I didn't approve. Oh my God, I didn't approve. I didn't tell a stark stranger on the street I didn't approve. But stop still. So I couldn't say I love him. I just went away and I couldn't talk to him about it anymore. And then I figured out what to do. I'd get his mother on him. There hadn't been anything his mother had not been able to do since I'd been married in that family. So I went to call on them. And I said, you've got to do something about Bob. He's going to kill himself in that pickup. He's going to kill somebody else. You've got to help. And do you know what he, his mother said? She looked at me and she said, Well, Ramona, he wasn't an alcoholic when he married you. <laughs> well, that's it, me home a trial. I didn't talk to her anymore. I didn't like that old anyway. <laughs> and what about your friends? What happened to your friends in the family disease of alcoholism? Well... <laughs> You know what friends are. Friends are people that just come, like we've got now, you know, that just come in and out of your house all day. Well, you can't have that going on when you've got a full-blown alcoholic. You know, I, I have a, a lot of AA friends. I love them dearly, and, and they let me sit around and listen to them talk, and after meetings, and once in a while, they'll get off onto these swapping tales about where they hid their bottle. And I just die laughing. Babies, they don't know nothing. Take a lesson from us. We tried to hide a live damn drunk. <laughs> there ain't no place you can put one of them boogers. You know, they just fall back out. We'd have company, and there'd be old Bob, you know, coming in, one blue eye looking like this, just grinning. And I'd say, I don't know what happened. He's never done this before. And he would have pulled the same trick the night before. So you've got to stop this friendship business. You can't have people coming in and out. I mean, it is a full-time job. Why, I really could have had a... I could have really been with the FBI the way I could shut down on information. And I got a lot of training. So then, the next break in communication was with my children. What happens to your children? I don't know what happened to your children, but I sure know what happened to ours. Robin and Rusty are grown. They're married. They have children. And Robin and Rusty still carry scars, and they're deep scars that I put there. 
You see, they understood their daddy very well. Daddy drank this, and he did that. Daddy wouldn't do it if he weren't drinking. But what is the matter with mother? <laughs> you know, old Bob would come in once in a while for supper, and I'd be in the kitchen cooking, and we'd be getting along pretty well, the kids and I would be. I'd be acting sort of normal. And he'd walk in that back door, and that old cowboy hat on and one blue eye like this, and he'd walk through the kitchen and down the hall to the bedroom. And whatever I had in my hand, I threw clear across the I'd kick the refrigerator, and I'd say, damn him, I'm going to kill him. And back I'd go, right back into the bedroom. There'd be old Bob stretched out on the bed, cowboy hat down over his nose. And I'd say, what in the hell do you think you're doing? And he'd lift up his hat and say, taking a nap, Ramona. Just taking a nap. And he'd pull his hat down. And I'd say, not in my house, you don't. You don't come home drunk and sleep it off in my house. Well, Bob wasn't a fighter. He never wanted to fight. You know, my trouble was Bob was always loving, but it was somebody else. <laughs> and old Bob would just get up, put his hat on, and back down the hall he'd go, out the kitchen door, be getting in the pickup, and there I'd go, two little kids right behind me, and I'd scream, where in the hell do you think you're going, Bob Belcher? And he'd say, to get some sleep, Ramon, just to get some sleep. I'd say, you better not. If I catch you in bed with somebody else, Bob Belford, I'll kill you. Bob would rattle off in the old pickup, and I'd scream, if you leave this time, don't you ever come back. And then my last insult was always, I hate you. People five miles away knew Bob wouldn't come on, and I hated him. Robin and Rusty would stand there, and Robin would always say, Mama, why did you run him off? And that would make me so mad. And I'd say, I didn't run him off. I didn't eat your supper. What do you do with a crazy woman? You eat, you know. <laughs> now get the dishes done. Well, I'd wash the dishes. I'd say, go in the bed, go to bed. Robin would say, Mama, it's not dark. And I'd say, did I ask you if it was dark? Get in the damn bed. And a little boy and girl had to sleep in the same room. And then the night would come. And then it gets dark. And then I'd begin that pacing the floor. Where is he? Who's he with? If I could catch him tonight, I'd make a believer out of him. And along about 11 or 12 o'clock, I couldn't stand it anymore. And, uh, and I'd go and flip on the light. Robin and Rusty would sit straight up in bed. And I'd say, come on, come on, let's go, let's go. Well, where are we going, Mama? Well, to get Daddy. Where in the hell do you think we're going? And then Robin would say, why'd you run him off for, mother? And I'd say, I didn't run him off. And she said, that one more time, I'm going to whip you. Get in the car. And here we go. Round every, every beer joint. Round every honky-tonk. Round and around the VFW. Because he's famous for hiding his pickup. And I'd say, do you see Daddy's pickup? And they'd say, no, mama. Is Daddy's pickup there? No, mama. And do you know when they got grown... Both of those kids told me they saw Daddy's pickup lots of times. They weren't trying to take care of Daddy. They were trying to keep their mama out of jail. And then we would go home. And little 
boy and girl have to sleep in the same bed. And what happens to us in this disease? Between the hours of one and four in the morning, the loneliness of the onlyest. I knew I was the only person in the world like this. And it would never be over. And I didn't know what to do. And I'd beg and I'd plead and I'd cry. And I'd say, God, please do something. I can't stand it anymore. And there was nothing, nothing, nothing I knew to change it. And I'd cry. And then I'd begin the bargaining. God, if you'll let him come home tonight, I'll never cuss again, I swear. God, if you'll let him come home tonight, it'll be different. I swear to God, I'll, I'll, I'll be better. I won't be, if I talked, somebody talked to me like I talked to Bob, I'd never come home. I'll never do it again, God, if you'll let him come home, I swear. If he's not hurt and he doesn't kill anybody, if things are going to be different, I'll get out of this in the morning. You know, I'll, I'll do something. <laughs> Long around 3.30, the front door would open, and there'd be old Bob. You know, not a scratch, one. <laughs> Just grinning that blue eye like this. God had answered my prayers. He did not have a scratch on him. And I'd try to kill the son of a bitch. <laughs> a little girl chewed her fingernails into the quick. A little boy stammered till he couldn't read aloud in school. And I looked at their daddy, and I said, look what you've done to two children. Aren't you proud of yourself? I didn't look at me. There wasn't anything wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with me. Then I did the last thing. I had the last break of communication, and that one was with God. See, I had a God, he wasn't of my understanding, but he was one that sat up there and punished you if you were bad and rewarded you if you were good. And I had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed what I thought was praying, but it wasn't praying as I know it in my life today. And uh, none of those prayers were answered. So I knew I was being punished. I wasn't good enough to get my prayers answered. So then... I decided to become good. Lord have mercy. Heaven help a man when his wife decides to become drunk. Good. If he's not drunk, he's got to go get drunk. Well, I want you to know I went into the church every time the doors opened. I took over the Sunday school class. And when I, the church I belong to, you kneel. And when you go in, and I'd always wait till just before the processional, and I'd walk right down the middle aisle, and I'd have a hand, a roll of robin and one rusty, and down we'd go right down that middle aisle, and I'd put my head down, you know, sort of pitiful, and walk down there, and then I'd kneel. And I knelt longer than anybody. You know, I thought I looked better that way. And I just prayed a shaft of light and shine on my head. And... You know, God could see me down there, so good. Because what I thought what he saw was what he got, you know. And then church would be over in here. I'd get a hold of these kids and back we'd go down the center aisle. And they'd look at me and they'd say, I'd smile. You know that sweet, sick smile? And they'd say, isn't she sweet? And those precious little children, 
Isn't it a shame about her husband? Oh, my God. The more they said, the gooder I got. The gooder I got, the drunker Bob got. And I just took over everything. I took over the hard drive, the cancer drive, the Cub Scouts, the Brownie Scouts, the PTA. Taught Sunday school. And I ran for Mrs. Oakmonkey. And Bob just loved it. See, I didn't have time to be home and bitch. You know, I was off doing good works. But I had told what I, God what I would do. I told him I would be good and he could sober up Bob. And a bargain is a bargain. I don't give a damn who you make it with. And God didn't do it. And I quit. And right then is when I decided God was a white man. <laughs> And then I went into the, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the blah, you know what the blah stage is? Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a little description. This, I had long black hair then, and I'm way down my back, and I did it way up in a knot, you know, and, uh, but I decided uh, Bob didn't, wouldn't listen to me. I told him he was killing me, and he would not listen to me, so I would show him. I wanted to see he was killing me. So I'd just get up. And I didn't even comb this old hair. Just hung. And I had an old robe. <laughs> and it wasn't even made a decent Purina feed sack. It was orange and brown and yellow and muckily done. And it came a little bit above my ankles. Button down the front and a few of the buttons were gone. And an old pair of floppy house shoes. And I just got up like that. That was my daily uniform. And you know, I walked around and every time look, Bob looked at me, I went, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I get the biggest kick out of that. Yeah, no, Morgan, we, you know, I go to a lot of open AA meetings and he'll be a new AA guy. He's got about three months sobriety. And I mean, he's just a shining and a hugging and a shaking hands. And he's happy as a lark. And then here's his wife. Now, there's nothing wrong with her. She doesn't need Al-Anon. And she walks in and goes, hmm. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and I just laugh because there I am, you know. That old hmm. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Well, one Sunday... Uh, Bob took the kids to Sunday school. I quit taking church. If they wanted to go listen to that crap, they could, but there was nothing to it. So they wanted to go, anything to get out of the house with mother. So their daddy took them. Well, he loved to take them because he took them and let them out. And then he went to the VFW. That's the only place he'd get a drink on, on Sunday morning. And I'd be up in my old robe and house shoes, and they'd come home, and the children were happy. There's nice people at church, and everybody laughed and had a good time, and they had punch and cookies, and old Bob didn't have any pain at all. They'd served just the punch he needed at the BFW, and they came in and said, what's for lunch? And I looked at you-know-who, and so they'd know why, and I said, make yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
Well, they're used to living with a crazy woman. They don't pay attention, so they do it. They just keep talking and laughing. And they go all go in and sit down in the breakfast room. And they're just having the best time. Now, I'm going to tell you if there's one thing that makes me mad. It's when I'm miserable, I want the rest of the goddamn world to be miserable, too. And I wasn't about to have them in there laughing with him. So I just went in there and sat down, and that just broke it up. <laughs> Robin says, Mama, could we go to the picture show this afternoon? And I said, how? And I look at you-know-who, so they don't know why there's no money. Daddy, would you give us the money to go to the show? Sure, Daddy'd give him the money to go to the show. He just cashed another hot check at the VFW. He had gobs of money. And I said, how are you going to get there? I'm not going to take you. Daddy, will you take us? Boy, with that old Bob was up, that cowboy hat was on, and he was going out the door. He hadn't known how he was going to get back to the VFW. And I said, you better not. If you go with him this afternoon, you'll walk home. You better not go. He won't come after you. And now they're going, and they're getting in the pickup, and I'm standing on the front porch screaming, don't call me. Walk. The kids, people five miles away, you know, the kids were supposed to walk home that Sunday. And I go back and slam the door and pull the drapes and lay down in the bed and I cried because nobody loved me. And I was the one that was good to that family. I was the one that took care of everything. And I cried about, Robin couldn't have a wedding. Bob would be too drunk to give her away. And I laid there and I cried about that. And Robin was 10 years old. <laughs> And what about Rusty? Rusty had to have a college education and even time to enroll him. So I cried about that because he'd never get to go to school. And he was seven years old. And then the phone rang. And I answered it and a little girl said, Mama, would you come get us? Daddy didn't come. And I go through a 15-minute tirade about, didn't I tell you so? Your father is a drunk. Blah, 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 blah. And I ended up with, above all, Robin, don't ever get married. And I run out, and I get in this old car. And that Oklahoma wind was blowing from the south. <laughs> but down in New Orleans, <laughs> they would think that they were having a, a storm in the half. And it's just a southern wind, a little breeze to us. And I got in that old car, the windows rolled down, that old robe was flapping, my hair was flying out the window. And he
car she's driving. And down I go in front of the picture show. <coughs> and there are the, all the cars stopped, and parents are picking up their children, looking like parents do on Sunday afternoon. And there's me. And the kids run out real quick. Rusty gets in the back seat, lays down on the floor. He didn't want anybody to know I was his mother. And back down Main Street we go. <laughs> Do you all know what was at the end of Main Street? The VFW. Boy, I slammed on my brakes and I wheeled that old car in the parking lot. And Robin says, oh, no, Mama. No, Mama. Please, Mama, let's go home. And I jump out of the car. She lays down the floor of the front seat. She didn't want anybody to know she'd be at the VFW. And up I go to the front door. And there's people driving up and down Main Street like they do in Little Town. And here I am, that wind's whipping that rope, that old hair's flying, and I'm pressing the buzzer. And this guy comes to the door, and he looks at me, and his eyes get big, and he just steps back. And I walked in, and I'll have you know I didn't speak to anyone. All those people sitting up at that bar, of course, they were fully dressed. And, uh, but drinking on Sunday. And back I go. Those old house shoes going flop, 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 flop. That little sister, that old hair flying. Back through the bar, ballroom, and into the poker room. And there sits old Bob at a round table about like that. And he looks up at me, and he pushes that cowboy hat back, and he looks sort of sick. <laughs> and he said, hi, honey. I didn't speak to him, no count man gambling and drunk on Sunday, and I just picked up my robe and made me a little pocket, and I rounded that table, and I took everybody's money. <laughs> then I stomped my foot, and I said, we're hungry. <laughs> and out I went, back through the ballroom, back through the bar, those <laughs> Quarters and nickels and dimes jangling, you know. My robe pulled up to my navel. And, and I get in the car and the kids, I start home just as fast as I can go. Oh, Lord. And there wasn't a sound in that car. <laughs> you know, by the grace of God, my mother and daddy both died without hearing about me robbing the VFW. <laughs> and I want to tell you, I didn't do no amends, neither. I didn't take anybody's money back. Because I didn't know who I got it from. <laughs> but I went home and I fell back down on that bed. And I hated me. I hated me. Look what I had become. I didn't know what I would do. I had no more control over what I would do than he had when he was drunk. He had more. My emotions completely overrode any sanity that I had. So I knew what was wrong with me. I knew. It was standing right there in a fancy cowboy hat and cowboy boots and bloodshot blue eyes. And if I got rid of him, I wouldn't be like that anymore. He was what was wrong with me. So I just filed suit for divorce. And that just plum tickled him to death. He'd been wanting to get rid of me for a long time. Mother and daddy were pleased. They didn't know I was crazy. 
and they thought their grandchildren would have a sane, comfortable home. But I had things go wrong. You know that? I want to tell you, an alcoholic is the greatest thing in the world there is to blame. If you haven't got one, go get you one. <laughs> I'm shopping for one because you can say, whatever goes wrong, it's your fault. You know, if you didn't drink, we could have a new car. We could take a vacation if you didn't drink up the money. And so here I was. I wasn't able, able to meet up to my own expectations. The kids played Cupid. And uh, just we were divorced five months and one week, and here came old Bob. And he said, Ramona, I'd like to talk to you. Now, I've been living 13 years in active alcoholism. And here's what he said. Ramona, let's go and get this divorce set aside. And let's go back together. And let's make a home for these children like they should have. And I will control my drinking. And I said, yes, Father. <laughs> well, we went to the courthouse and got the divorce set aside. Funniest thing happened. At, like all the local courthouses, you got a row of stairs you have to go down. And we came out of the courthouse, and guess who was standing at the foot of the chair stairs? It was his mama. And she grabbed me and hugged me and kissed me and loved me. I was her long-lost daughter. She welcomed me back in the family. See, Bob had moved home. <laughs> well, Bob and I went to a dance that night at the country club, you know, to celebrate the second time around, uh, you know, all of the real sentimental stuff. And you know what happened? I got drunker than he did. I just tied it on, because I knew I'd played hell. And the next morning, I awoke, and the first truly important thing in my whole life happened to me. And the children were asleep, Bob was asleep, and I walked over to the windows and looked out at the trees. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I'm right back where I started. Bob is an alcoholic. Bob isn't going to quit drinking. And I surrendered. I totally and completely surrendered. <coughs> Excuse me. There was nothing left for me to do. I'd run him off and brought him back. I'd gotten down on my knees and prayed to him like he was God in my life. And then 30 minutes later, taken a butcher knife and tried to kill him. I had cursed him, run him off, and then begged him to come home. And I knew there was nothing, nothing. And I totally and completely surrendered. And that's a part that every one of us must reach. That's the point of total and utter surrender, whether we be AA, Al-Anon, or Alateen, or any 12-step recovery program. The total and complete surrender of ourselves, we can do nothing. And this begins the story of the glory and the dignity and the beauty and the joy and the love that comes about in your life. All the things my father had talked to me about when I was a little kid in the, with my feet in the creek. These things came to pass 
when I totally surrendered. Because, you know, God loves us enough that he'll let us do it our way as long as we want to. Well, Bob had taken a job because he had long ago drunk up the ranch. The cattle were gone. The, ho the ranch was leased out. He had a few quarter horses left, and he was trying to make us a living. And I went with him to western Oklahoma, and on the way back, we had a car accident. And I was left with a brain injury. And it led me to many hospitals to try to have something done about me. And in a hospital in New Orleans, the second great thing happened to me. God allowed me to see me. Not for what I wanted you to think I was. Not for what I thought I was. But for what I really was. He had given me a tongue and the ability to speak. And that tongue was to say kind things, happy things. And I had lacerated a man and two little children with the sharpest tongue in the world. I wanted to cut them down. He had given me hands. And these hands were to be gentle, to show love, just to help somebody else. And I'd made them into fists. And the more I loved, the harder I hit. And he let me see every screaming, crying, fighting inch of me. But the beautiful part about it was, he let me know he loved me. Ever fighting, cussing bit of me. Not because I was good. Not because I taught Sunday school. But for no other reason than I was his child. He loved me. Well, I came back from New Orleans ready to do something about me. Not for Bob Belford, not for two little children, but so I could live with me some way again. There was no Al-Anon group in Oakmonkey, and uh, my recovery program came from California. There was a young minister that was in Oakmonkey for a short three years, and um, he had a, uh, he was a Presbyterian minister. And one of my neighbors who had seen me try to shoot Bob's quarter horses I was going to kill him. I thought he loved them more than he loved me, so I'd just kill the damn horses. And she'd taken the loaded revolver out of my hand. I told her about what happened in, in uh, New Orleans. And she said, why don't you go see Tom? Maybe he could help you. And I would have gone any place, anywhere. Anywhere. If you had told me to go out on my head stark naked and stand on my head in the busiest intersection at Sacramento and I would be better, I would have done it. I would have tried anything. And so she made an appointment and I went to see Tom. And Tom had been well trained. I never knew how. He never told me why, how he knew AA and Al-Anon and Alateen so well. But he took me down and he became my program. He was my sponsor and he made me do those steps. And I gave up and I gave out. It's not easy living with a practicing alcoholic and letting go and let God. How do you let go and let God when you don't have any money to pay the rent? When you don't have any food, how do you let go and let God? And he says, you let go and you let Bob. And he taught me the serenity prayer and this is the way he taught it. God grant me the serenity to accept the thing I cannot change the alcoholic. The courage to change the thing I can myself. And he says, and you stop right there. You haven't even got the wisdom to know the difference. 
told me God loved Bob probably better than he did me. And I said, I doubt that. I taught Sunday school. So he had me do a little outside reading to find out that that doesn't have anything to do with it. And he told me that all I had to do was let God take care of Bob and me take care of my business. So Bob left on Monday morning and came back on Thursday evening. So I'd follow him out to the front porch and I'd kiss him goodbye. He'd drive away. And I, when he left, I'd say, God, he's your boy. You love him more than I do. You take care of him. And you know, I'd have the nicest week. I could talk to the kids again. I wasn't screaming and fighting. And we were just sort of having fun. And then Bob would come home on Thursday. And I gave God the weekend off. And we had hell on Monday morning. So finally talked to Tom about this. And Tom told me, he says, Ramona, God doesn't work 40-hour weeks. It was 24 hours a day from now to eternity. Let him run the show all the time. Well, I just have to tell you one little bit more about... <laughs> Tom told me that I just looked like hell. Because I still hadn't given up my sick. You know, I still wanted Bob to see how pitiful I was. And on top of that, I was sick too because I'd been in a car wreck. And he told me that if he had a wife that looked like me, he'd get drunk too. And he said, you're supposed to shine in God's glory. Well, I want you to know if Tom said do it, do it. Now, that's what you do in this program. You do those steps. You listen to those people, and you take that sponsor, and you mean do it. So I saved up my money, and I went to the beauty shop, and I got my hair cut off, and it was bouffant hairdos, you know. And I had a lot of hair. And uh, I, I went once a week and had it blown up. <laughs> and uh, then uh, I went to the diamond store and got me some white cold cream, you know. And <laughs> this was a Saturday, and, and I had been blown up that day. And uh, <laughs> Bob went to the VFW, and I got ready to go to bed. Now, when you can only get one of those hairdos done once a week, you got to spray it till it crackles, you know, stick. You can't lie down too soon or it'll be flat on one side. And then when it gets all dry, I'd wrap it up in toilet paper. And then I'd put a sleep cap on over there if it would fit on my head. But that day, it didn't, so I just put my pants on, you know. And then I put white cold cream on my face, and then I went to bed. And I had sounds that I could not talk and read at the same time. It's impossible. And that was one of my things that I had to do was keep my mouth shut. So I just read all the time and, you know, just tried not to say anything. So Bob was gone and I had read everything I could get on alcoholism and I didn't have any Al-Anon literature and I'd read everything Bob, Tom had given me for reading and I'd gotten off into faith healing. Lord have mercy. And I was real interested in faith healing. Now, I want to tell you, faith healing is a spooky subject. You just don't talk to anybody about faith healing, you know. And it was around 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was all sprayed up, pants on my head, and my coat and my, my glasses on. Old Bob came in from the BFW. And he walked through the bedroom, and he took one look at me, and he went straight in the kitchen, fixed himself a drink. I thought he deserved that one. I never have been at least bit upset. Came back in, sat down in the rocking chair at the foot of the bed, 
pushed that old cowboy hat back. He took a little drink, and he says, what you doing? And I said, I'm reading a book. He said, hell, I can see that. He said, what's it about? I just been dying to talk about faith healing. <laughs> and I just threw that book down and I said, faith healing works. And by that time I was on my hands and knees at the foot of the bed. And old Bob looked at me and he says, it does? And I said, yes, it does. It's proven medically, scientifically, faith healing works. Now, I couldn't do it. But if I can get rid of all the resentment and the fear and the hatred and just become a channel for God. All I gotta do is put my hand on you and say, heal, and you'll never take another drink again. <laughs> Old Bob threw up both hands, he fell out of the rocking chair, and he said, God damn you, don't you touch me. thing I ever saw in my life. I laughed. Laughter leaves the home when the disease of alcoholism comes in. And I laughed again. We laughed better than any people in the world. Do you know that? Because only those who have suffered pure pain and sorrow have a well deep enough to hold pure joy. And we laugh so good. I love to hear it. And I laughed that night. Well, Bob moved down the other bedroom. He's afraid I'd do it in his sleep. <laughs> but believe it or not, Bob went to AA, not because of me, in spite of me. He went on his own, and that was in January of 1963. And in March of 1963, I was a charter member to found the original Al-Anon group. Tom came and helped us, and thank you for your literature. We had no world service at that time, so I, we got a lot of t literature from California, and we started that little group. I wish I could tell you what you did for Bob and me. I wish there was some way I could thank you, but there's no words. See, Bob and I had nothing in common except the love of two children. We'd practically, we'd destroyed a marriage. We'd practically destroyed each other. And we came here. And we learned to respect you. And we learned to respect each other. And we grew to love you. And we grew to love each other. And we built a marriage on this program. And we went to conventions. And I'd hear beautiful people. I remember the first convention we went to. Uh, Bob, when in January and in May, they had the state AA convention, and they had an Aladon speaker, and you'd never believe who I heard. My first speaker was Elsa C. from California. Well, next March, think about it on March the 6th. This little old bitty original Aladon group is going to celebrate their 25th anniversary, and we went whole hog. You know who our speaker's going to be? <laughs> now, I don't know where we got enough for a ticket. I don't know where the rest of us going to come from. But you all told me this to work and pray, and that's just what I'm doing. Well, I don't know how long it was. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. 
But I had, I thought I was really living my happily ever after. It had finally come about. And um, I went to the doctor and I heard those dreaded words. I'm sorry, Ramona, report into the hospital, you have cancer. And I thought, oh my God, not me, not me. Why me, God? What have I done wrong now? And I reverted right back to this punishing God. I didn't walk into my little group and say, I'm scared to death. I'm scared of that cobalt room. Help me. Because I didn't think this program worked on any dis-ease of the body, mind, soul, or spirit. I thought it only worked on alcoholism. So I didn't talk. I just went back to the old fighting. You can do it. Hang in there, kid. And got through the series of treatments. Walked out. Stamped grade A beef by the doctor. Went home and showed Bob and patted myself on the back. I'd done it. And went back to living my program. That's not the way it works. This is a 24-hour day program. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part. Well, I don't know. I had continual checkups in about a year or so. The same doctor called me with the same thing. He said, Ramon, I'm sorry. You have cancer again. Reporting in the hospital for your cobalt. And thank God. Thank God. This time I used my program. I walked in that bedroom where I had faith healed old Bob. <laughs> and I got down on my knees by that rocking chair. And I said, God, this wouldn't have come back in my life if I'd learned what I needed to know. Just use me and just help me. And oh, he did. Don't ever ask him from the depth of your being unless you want an answer. I went back for cobalt and the place I had gone in in fear, I went in in joy because I found that my awareness of the God in my life seems to be based upon the true depth of my need and I desperately needed him and I came out of there with a totally new concept of God and this is the God that these words best express the God in my life today my God does not bargain my God doesn't work for pay my God just gives my God does not love me because of because of who I am my God loves me because of what he is. Two weeks from the day I took my last cobalt treatment, Bob took his first. And he'd never been sick a day in his life. I always said it's because he's never sober a day. Bob wasn't a periodic drinker. He was a daily drinker. He drank um, <laughs> Jim Beam like I smoke cigarettes. And um, the doctor said the same words. Only this time, Bob's was terminal. He lived 18 months. And what happened then? What happened then? Then I saw the dignity and the power and the strength of this program come to play and the gentle tenderness. We could not stand it alone. We could not have walked it by ourselves. 
and there wasn't a day that one of you weren't there or a house full with a laugh on your face, then how are things? Are they better? My God, they were better. You were there. They told me he would probably choke to death or hemorrhage. And he always was wanting a cup of coffee. And I'd walk out of the room because I'd think, I cannot stand here and choke. I want to say, no, no, don't drink it. But I had to turn him loose. He's God's child. And at that very moment, the front door would open or the phone would ring. And there you'd be. I don't know how you see God, but I know how I see God. I see him in your eyes and in your hands and the smile on your face. And he never failed us one moment. Not one moment. And Bob died in October of 1972. He lacked two months of celebrating his 10th birthday. And he died in dignity. And he died in peace. And he died sober. What has happened in my life since then? Well, a lot of things have changed. I moved into an apartment and I thought I couldn't stand town. I'm a country girl. And God had a little old apartment up on top of the trees. If I'd climb three flights of stairs. I had a job, and I had you, and my life went on. You loved me, and you let me love you. You gave to me, and you let me give it back. And I had a good life. I had a good life. Robin and Rusty married. Rusty's a banker. He was when I left Friday. <laughs> He has a little bank out in western Oklahoma, and I ask him every week, is it still there? And he says, so far. <laughs> and uh, Robin lives in Tulsa, which is about 40 miles from me, and I get to be with them. And I have so many people I love all over the world. You didn't know I loved you before I ever came here. Well, in, I had taken a job <clears throat> with a friend and uh, someone I'd known who was an attorney and um, in fact I had worked for her brother for many years and he had been Bob's sponsor in AA and uh, he didn't make the program and Bob did and I worked for him for many years and then you know alcoholism progresses the ism progresses if it's not treated even though there's no drinking and I had to leave because I had become an enabler. I couldn't differentiate between being a good employee and an enabler. So I had to leave and his sister wanted to go into practice by herself and asked me if I would go with her and I said yes. And I thought I had a very good job. I was only in that about a year and a half and I saw that she didn't want me anymore. I'd help start the, the practice, but now she could get by with somebody who could just run a computer. And uh, I felt unneeded and unwanted. And in December of 67, I had been feeling terrible and I was afraid to miss work for fear I would lose my job. And uh, I'd gotten filled with fear again. And I went, my daughter came and she saw me and took me out of the office and took me to Tulsa, back to the same old doctor. And there were some tests. 
and I heard those same old words. This time it was, Ramona, you have cancer of the spine. And you know, I didn't want to get well. I just relaxed. I'd evidently done what God had sent me here to do. And there was nothing more. So I just let it go. If that's what he wanted, it was fine with me. I had to move out of my apartment up on three floors because I couldn't climb three flights of stairs. I lost my job. The day I came home from my daughter's, my employer walked in and gave me a check and said that was my termination pay. And uh, I just really thought this is all. I've done what I'm supposed to do. There comes a time for each of us, doesn't there? This is what I thought. Don't fight anymore. And you know, you breathed life back into me. My little group wouldn't let me stop. They were at my house. They were at the apartment. They were on the telephone. A bunch of AAs and Alanons came from a neighboring town up to my daughter's. <laughs> they brought three air pots of coffee. 50 paper cups and 10 dozen packages of cigarettes. <laughs> my son-in-law doesn't smoke and neither does my daughter. And they had pushed themselves back into the back bedroom and let us have the rest of the house. And my son-in-law said, Robin, how in the world will we ever get this house aired out when they leave? And she looked at him and she said, my God, if they can do for my mother, what they did for my daddy, they can burn this house down. And they did. <laughs> they damn near did. So by one day at a time, and by knowing that the love and the strength of you people, I got a desire to live again. I don't know what God wants this little old gray-headed humpback lady to do. But he must have something. I have a little apartment now. I had to move in a smaller place. But do you know what? It's got a big pecan tree. And I've got squirrels and redbirds. And I don't feel alone. I'm never alone. See, I'm, I'm not capable of doing anything myself. I never have been. But create a problem. And um, God just takes care of me. He got me out here. And he'll get me home. And uh, I found out that God loves apartments. He doesn't let us like real old big, big old houses. <laughs> God loves wherever to be, wherever he's invited. And when I moved in that little bitty apartment, I invited him in as my house guest. And you know what? Tomorrow afternoon, about 7 o'clock, 7 in the evening, I'll get home. And I'll go up that little short flight of stairs and open the door. And you know, he'll beat me up the stairs every damn time. He'll go with me on the plane and he gets me to old Muggy in my car, but he beats me upstairs. He doesn't carry luggage. <laughs> and when I walk in there, I feel, welcome home, my child. And I'm at peace. I don't know how to thank you. There's no way. I know this. I love Alcoholics Anonymous 
with all my heart and soul because you were the answer to my prayer. How little did I know that God would send one drunk to talk to another drunk and answer my prayer of sobriety for the man I loved. And I love him. And I love Al-Anon with all my heart and soul because it has set me free from the bondage of me. And you gave me God in my life, which I had never had before. And what greater gift could be given than a loving, caring, tender, gentle God that comes in your hands and faces. I love you. God bless you.